Well, hello, friends. I hope you are sitting comfortably and fully strapped in for today because it's a big one. James Clear is the author of Atomic Habits and has half a million people subscribed to his newsletter. You will have heard myself, Johnny and Yusuf mentioning Atomic Habits a lot so far this year. So if you don't trust our opinion, then the opinion of half a million other people hopefully will encourage you to believe that uh, we know what we're talking about. James's episode with myself today is nothing short of one of the most actionable and most important episodes that I've done. I'm aware I keep on saying this, but it genuinely is. Our lives are shaped by the actions that we do every day. Anything that we accomplish from the small to the great is a lagging measure of the daily actions that we take. And today, James is going to take us through exactly how we build habits and how we break them, how you can use a proven methodology to make your habits stick and to get away from things that you wish you would stop doing. We're also going to talk a lot about finding purpose in life and how your genetics do not predetermine, but they do predispose, where to look for your passion when it comes to work and also hobbies. It's fantastic. This blend of the conceptual and philosophical with the actionable is exactly why I started doing this podcast. If you only recommend one episode to a friend ever, I suggest that it's this one. And I would really appreciate it if you do just that. There's three dots on the bottom right hand corner, or there'll be a little up arrow with a share button. Copy the link and send it to a friend who you want to help improve themselves. They'll benefit from it. And so will my play count. So please do it. I would really appreciate it. All right, quick maths. The less that your business spends on operations, on multiple systems, on delivering your product or service, the more margin you have, the more money that you keep. But with higher expenses on materials, employees, distribution, and borrowing, everything costs more. So to reduce the costs and headaches, smart businesses are graduating to NetSuite by Oracle. NetSuite is the number one cloud financial system, bringing accounting, financial management, inventory, and HR into one platform and one source of truth. With NetSuite, you reduce IT costs because NetSuite lives in the cloud with no hardware required. You cut the cost of maintaining multiple systems because you've got one unified business management suite, and you are improving efficiency by bringing all your business processes into one platform. Over 37 thousand companies have already made the move so do the maths and see how you will profit with NetSuite. Back by popular demand NetSuite has extended its one-of-a-kind flexible financing program for a few more weeks. Head to netsuite.com modern right now. That's netsuite.com modern. This episode is brought to you by Crafted London. Finding men's jewellery that doesn't suck is very difficult and Crafted London have nailed it. They're the number one men's jewellery company worldwide. They're sweatproof, waterproof, heatproof, and gym-proof. They've got custom designs in gold and silver, necklaces, chains, pendants, bracelets, rings, and earrings. If you've seen me on any of the big cinema episodes on YouTube wearing a necklace, it will always be from Crafted. I absolutely love it. It works with formal wear, casual wear, whether it's daytime or nighttime. All of the pieces are super high quality. The designs are great, and uh, I love them. That's It's all I wear. Also, they have an unlimited lifetime guarantee so if your piece breaks for any reason at any point during the entire life of the product they will give you a new one for free get a 15 percent discount site-wide on everything by going to bit.ly slash cd wisdom using the code mw15 at checkout that's bit.ly slash letter c letter d wisdom and mw15 at checkout this episode is brought to you by 
Whoop. I've worn Whoop for over four years now, since way before they were a partner on the show, and it is the only wearable I have ever stuck with because it's the best. It is so innocuous, you do not remember that you've got it on, and yet it tracks absolutely everything 24-7 via something from your wrist. It tracks your heart rate, it tracks your sleep, your recovery, all of your workouts, your resting heart rate, your heart rate variability, how much you're breathing throughout the night. It puts all of this into an app and spits out very simple, easy to understand, and fantastically usable data. It's phenomenal. I am a massive, massive fan of Whoop, and that is why it's the only wearable that I've ever stuck with. You can join for free, pay nothing for the brand new Whoop 4.0 strap, plus you get your first month for free, and there's a 30-day money-back guarantee, so you can buy it for free, try it for free, and if you do not like it, after 29 days, they will give you your money back. Head to join.whoop.com slash modernwisdom. That's join.whoop.com slash modernwisdom. But for now, please welcome James Clear. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome back. I'm joined by Mr. James Clear. How are you today? Hello. Yeah, good to talk to you. I'm doing well. Welcome to the show. Um, a lot of the listeners will have heard us talk at length about how much we loved Atomic Habits. It's been a an absolute game changer for us this year. And Oh, thank super- you so much. I'm glad you enjoyed it. Yeah, it's, uh, it really is a, a big paradigm shift um, for a lot of the things that we've been reading recently, it, it wasn't, they say that the best books are ones that tell you things that you already know. And a lot mm. of the things in Atomic Habits, it pieced together in a way that I hadn't ever seen before. A lot of the ancillary little bits and pieces and then compiled them into just stop being an idiot. This is what you need to do. <laughs> so I'm super excited to go through it today. Great. Yeah, I'm excited to talk about it too. Brilliant. Um, so first and foremost, why do we need to be bothered about habits? Yeah, that's a good question. You know, I mean, on one hand, like everybody has habits, right? We're all building them all the time, whether you're thinking about it or not. So um, that part, I think, is provides a little bit of a, a reason why. If you're building habits anyway, then it kind of makes sense to understand what they are and how they work so that you can maybe build them in a way that benefits you rather than in a way that hinders you. And I think that is a deeper truth about habits that they're kind of like a double edged sword, you know, like they can either build you up or tear you down and you need to understand the kind of fundamental pieces of them and how to adjust them so that you can make sure they're working for you. Um, which kind of naturally leads to a question of like, what is a habit and why do we bother forming it at all? And I think like a simple way to describe it is that habits allow you to solve the problems of life with less energy and effort than you would otherwise need. And, you know, all life requires energy to exist. If you if you don't have energy, then you don't survive. And so energy is very precious for that reason. And your brain is looking for ways to conserve it whenever possible. Um, You know, this makes just logical sense, right? Like if you imagine like our ancestors living on the savanna, if you could forage for berries in a patch that's 100 meters away, then why would you bother foraging for berries in a patch that's like 10,000 meters away or on the other (laughs) side of the mountain or whatever, right? Like you're going to seek the path of least resistance to get the results that you want. And habits are sort of a, a shortcut, a mental shortcut 
that your brain uses to, to do that kind of thing on a daily basis. So take, for example, the habit of tying your shoe. Um, the first time you do it, you don't know how to tie your shoe and you have to think carefully about how to make the knots and someone has to teach you how to do it and so on. But after you do it a hundred times or a thousand times or 10,000 times, pretty soon you can tie your shoes while you're talking to somebody or thinking about your to-do list for the day. Um, you just pretty, pretty much can do it on autopilot. And so in a small sense, tying a shoe is like a problem that you face on a daily basis and your brain has automated the solution. And habits allow you to do that in all different areas of life all the time. You, you automate the solutions to the recurring problems in life, which means you can focus on other things and direct your attention elsewhere. So for that reason, habits are like so central to our experience that we often overlook them. Like you don't even really think about brushing your teeth or tying your shoes or unplugging the toaster after each use or all these other things that you do each day. But your habits are the thing that help you function and operate in the world in a more efficient manner. Then there's also like the deeper or bigger impact that habits have, which if you think about like the results that you want in life, most of your results are like a lagging measure of the habits that precede them. So you know, your bank account is a lagging measure of your financial habits or your weight is a lagging measure of your eating habits or your knowledge is a lagging measure of your learning habits. And so by a lot of the time, people think what they need is a different outcome. They think they need a bigger bank account or a lower number on the scale or, um, you know, more intelligence and wisdom. But actually what they need are the habits that precede those things. And so I think that's another reason why habits are really important and why to focus on them, uh, which is that habits are the leading indicator of all the lagging results that we really want and aspire to achieve in life. I totally get it. Can you talk about systems versus goals, please? It was a, sure. It was something that I'd seen in Chasing Excellence by Ben Bergeron and a couple of other books and hadn't really put it together, but it was incredibly succinctly and uh, brutally de <laughs> delivered to remind me just how many mistakes I sometimes make in Atomic Habits. Yeah, thanks. Well, I mean, you know, I think this is a, these are pitfalls that we all fall into. Um, humans are tend to be very goal oriented. Um, and, you know, sometimes that makes sense, right? For like our survival, you need essentially like the goal of finding food and water in order to motivate yourself to actually go get that and, and to, uh, to survive. But in modern society and just in daily life, we often kind of take that to the extreme. So before I uh, criticize or uh, point out the flaws in goals, I should say like, I, I think goals are useful. You know, it's not, it's not that they don't serve a purpose or entirely useless. Like one of the things that having goals does is it provides clarity. Um, it, you know, shows you what direction to focus on or where to direct your attention. Goals can also act as like a filtering mechanism. So it's much easier to say no to something when you know what your goal or your purpose is, right? Otherwise, like different opportunities come your way during life and you're like, yeah, okay, I'll try that. But if you know what your goal is and that opportunity doesn't relate to that, then you can much more easily say no. So uh, those are some of the things that goals do well. But there's a lot of things that goals don't do well or that we uh, kind of overvalue the importance of goals for making progress. And so one of the things is that, and I've actually talked to Ben Bergeron about this before. Um, one of the things is that winners and losers often have the same goals. So in any particular domain, you know, like uh, in the Olympics, pretty much every Olympian has the goal of winning the gold medal. Um, it's not the goal that separates them. Or 
in uh, if you're applying for a job. Pretty much every candidate who applies for a job has the goal of getting that job. So the goal is not the thing that makes the difference. And so the question is, well, what is it? And it's the process and the habits and the preparation that precede the goal or in some cases follow uh, after you've set your sights on something. And so that collection of habits and processes, the collection of uh, habits that you follow and use to prepare, that's what I call your system. Um, And so I think that we should place more value on the system and less value on the goal. And there are a couple other reasons or uh, why this this distinction between the two are important. So like uh, let's just lay out uh, kind of in clear examples. What's the difference between a system and a goal? So your goal, if you're a basketball coach, your goal might be to win the championship. But your system is the way that you recruit players and assistant coaches, the drills that you do at practice each day, your process for reviewing film. And, uh, you know, if you're a, um, if you're a writer, your goal might be to write a best-selling book, but your system is how you research topics, um, you know, your writing habit and how you show up and write each day, the editorial process and how you review your writing and improve it. Um, and on and on, right? So the, the goal is the outcome that you want. The system is the process that you follow for getting there and goals can be helpful for clarity, but systems are good for actually making progress. And so when you want to actually move forward, you need to shift your attention. You kind of need to like metaphorically put the goal on the shelf and then pour all of your energy into building a better system. Um, The other interesting thing is if you think about this in a long term standpoint. So true long term thinking is really goalless thinking because if you achieve a goal, it only changes your life for the moment, right? Like you could set a goal to like, let's say your bedroom is messy and you set a goal to clean your room. Well, you could get motivated for a few hours and clean your room and you do have a clean room for now, but if you don't change the sloppy, messy habits that led to a dirty room in the first place, then you just turn around, you know, uh, a week later or a month later and you end up with a dirty room again. Yeah. And so, It's actually you think you need a clean room, but actually what you need are the habits that precede a clean room or the habits that deliver a clean room. And this, I think, is true in so many areas of life. We think that we need to change our goals, but actually we need to change our system. Actually, we need to change the habits that we're following each day. And so uh, this is why I say you don't rise to the level of your goals. You fall to the level of your systems. You can have whatever goal you want. Uh, Every candidate has the goal to get the job. Every Olympian has the goal to win the gold medal. But if you don't have the systems to support that, if you don't have the habits and rituals to actually make it a reality, then your goals are going to fall flat. And so um, having the vision is one thing, but it's probably the easier thing. It's actually the habits that that make you uh, move forward and, and make progress. One of our friends, George, recently sent a message saying that he has a project that he's going to begin working on and he was really excited about it. But he knows that he gives himself a degree of dopamine kick just by talking about the goal that mm-hmm. that that verbalizing of the goal and the communicating of it is almost like a, a masturbatory kind of action that gives him this sense of oh well i've achieved something whilst also mm-hmm. having actually achieved nothing um and i think that's a, a very delicate balance that you need to strike Yeah, it's interesting. You know, sometimes when people talk about projects that they want to achieve, it creates like a form of accountability for them. And so like telling somebody about it, they feel like, oh, I don't want to fall flat on, you know, telling this promise that I made. And so they find it more motivating. But I've often experienced what uh, George is mentioning, where you tell somebody about something 
and you feel like you did something about it because you're talking about it. You know, like this is the kind of thing where you you have like a business idea. So you work on it on the weekends. You tell people, oh, yeah, I'm like thinking about starting this thing. But you never actually go anywhere. It's just like talking about it or debating like what should the company be named or what should our business cards look like or what should the logo be? It provides the illusion of making progress. Yeah. Um, and uh, the, it reminds me of this quote. I just just saw this quote for the first time the other day from uh, Bob Knight, the famous uh, basketball coach, where he said, like, the will to win is not what you need. Like having the will to win is easy. Everybody wants to win. What you need is the will to prepare to win. And I think that is kind of like it distinguishes a little bit of the difference here. Like, yeah, everybody wants to have a successful business or start some cool project or like do something interesting. Um, but are you actually fascinated with all the aspects of preparing for that? Right. Like, are you it's not writing a book that is like everybody's like, yeah, it'd be cool to have a best selling book. But the book is the easy part, like the the harder part, the thing that you really need to be fascinated with is. Do you love researching stories? Do you like editing your own writing? Do you like sitting down and writing for, you know, 20 minutes every morning or whatever? Yeah. And it's the people who and this is this is kind of a strange thing about a lot of areas of life, which is the people who get the best results in a particular area are actually often not the people who are doing it for the results. It's the people who love the process of doing the thing like the people who um read about early retirement and the best investing strategies and figuring out how to optimize their money. Um, they don't actually need the financial advice. A lot of the time they already have their act together financially, but the reason they have their act together is because they love the process of reading about that stuff and implementing it, and utilizing those ideas. And so, um, often the people who need the advice are not the ones who love digging for it. And the ones who love digging for it don't even really need it anymore. But that's the very reason why they don't need it is because they love the process of it. Yeah. I suppose that that highlights a, a, a big difference between people that do things for passion and do things to get a grind or mm. to, to complete it. Something as a task that needs to be fulfilled. Ben Bergeron again in chasing excellence touches on this a lot where he says that the people who love the process will always beat the people who have to force themselves and use willpower to get up and do it because the people who feel like this is their life and who don't have to reach into that willpower pot to go and do something, that it just comes naturally to them, the same as breathing. I think Catherine David sort of got asked, like, how do you train seven hours a day and sleep all the time and do all of this sort of stuff? And she said, well, if you gave me any life in the world, this exactly what I'm doing right now and what you think is hard is exactly what I would choose to do. And now, mm. how much easier is it going to be for Catherine David's daughter to train seven hours a day than for someone who hates the gym? Like it's infinitely more easy. Um, yeah, I think you used an example about a basketball coach as well who, um, who said something similar to do with it's not the players who have the most skill, but the ones who get bored the least with training. Yeah. Uh, yeah. It was a weightlifting coach that I had met uh, in some of my training where he said, I asked him like, well, you know, what's the difference between the people at the top of the field and the people who, um, who just kind of have talent, but fizzle out. And, uh, he was like, well, you know, certainly like talent and genes and nutrition and all that plays into it. But at the end of the day, it just comes down to who can handle the boredom of doing the same lifts over and over again every day. <laughs> and I think that's true in so many areas of life. For many people, it feels boring. But for occasionally, they find someone finds a way to love the boredom, to fall in love with it, yeah. to make it the thing that's enjoyable to them. And I think um, I think the way that I would just building off of your example of Katrin uh, and kind of like how she 
loves the process, loves the fact of years from a lot of top athletes. Like it's actually not an obligation to them to live the light, to train the way that they're training. It, it's, it feels like what they want to do. And in fact, this is exactly the opposite of what you hear from many athletes when they retire. They, they specifically say that they retire because it starts to feel like an obligation because yeah. it no longer feels fun. So, um, I think that, you know, the world, um, this is how I would break this down. So it's, it's not that talent doesn't matter and it's only about passion and, uh, motivation and trying hard, uh, both nature and nurture matter, both talent and, um, uh, effort make a difference. But in a world of 7 billion people, you can pick any domain you want and you're going to find somebody who is willing to sacrifice uh, everything for that particular uh, area, for that particular domain. You're going to find somebody who is both talented and it doesn't feel like an obligation to them. It just feels great. And they're a very dangerous, uh, very dangerous individual. Yes, right. Like that's good luck competing with somebody like that. If you feel like you need willpower to make it work because they're both, even if you're talented, they're as talented as you are. And it feels like fun. Um, <laughs> and so that's like a really hard combination to strike. I, um, uh, I always think of Steffi Graf, the famous tennis player. So yeah. she, when she was a kid in Germany, they, uh, she was part of this study just randomly. She happened to be part of the study of young German tennis players and they measured, I think she was maybe 12 to 14, somewhere in that range. And they measured all kinds of things. They measured like, uh, you know, their physical characteristics, aerobic capacity, strength, explosiveness, and she tested highest on all of those scores, but then they also measured the psychological traits and she tested highest on competitive desire. It was like, well, it, it literally doesn't matter if you're as talented as her because she wants it more. And it doesn't matter if you want it as much as her. She's better than you. So that combination is just like a, per, a beautiful uh, thing. And I think that um, the world is becoming it's developing infinitely more niches than it ever did before. This is what the internet is enabling, right? There are more and more little pockets for people to find the thing that's just right for them. And so what's hopeful uh, in my mind is that almost anybody can try to find something like that for themselves, something that they are naturally suited to do that they tend to be very good at and that they, that feels like fun to them. That doesn't, that doesn't feel like an obligation. And so what you're really looking to do is you're looking to align your ambition with your ability. And if you have both of those things working for you, then you can really make some progress. Um, so I feel like that's something that, you know, Katrin happens to, for her, it happens to be CrossFit, yeah. uh, for other famous, you know, Steffi Graf or whatever. Like we see, there's some of these very visible examples in sports, but there are probably a lot of other examples of people we never have heard their names, but they found their thing too. Yeah. And so you just need to try to figure out where's that niche where my ambition is aligned with my ability. Because I think at the top of pretty much any domain, you find people that are not only well-suited and talented, but also well-trained. Um, and so you, you kind of have both where you, you match up your effort and your, um, and your um, natural ability. For anyone who's listening who thinks I haven't quite found whatever my natural calling may be or whatever feels fun to me, are there any mechanisms or any uh, bits of advice that you could give to them? Yeah. So, you know, I mean, this is hard, right? Like I, in a lot of ways, I feel like I'm still searching for it. I've had uh, seasons in my life where I feel like I've found it, um, but then nothing long term that's like really stuck. So, I talk about this a little bit later in the book, um, this whole idea of what's called the explore exploit trade off. And so explore exploit trade off basically says, 
early on, uh, and it depends on what timeline you're looking at, you could say, for example, I have 30 years to work. So early on in my career is maybe the first five years or something. Or you could say, we have this project that we're working on and the deadline is six months away. So early on is the first two to three weeks. But early on, uh, you, what you should do is you should explore widely. You should look for as many options uh, as possible to solve the problems that you're facing. So maybe you look for a bunch of options for getting this project done or new pieces of software you could use or different strategies that you could follow for implementing the ideas that you want to execute on in the project. For your career, um, sometimes we call this internships or like exploring a couple different fields, doing some kind of rotational management program. Um, maybe it's trying like three or four different careers over the first five years, but you want to explore widely. Then as time starts to get tighter and you get closer and closer to the deadline, the project, or you get deeper and deeper into your career, you've already explored a lot. And so what you want to do is start exploiting the best option that you found so far so that you can get some results, you know, like you're getting deeper in your career, explore the best thing you've exploit, the best thing you found so that you can make some money and start saving for retirement and accumulating wealth, or you're getting closer to the project deadline. So let's use the best idea that we found so that we can get some results and get this thing finished. It's like a split and test, a split test in marketing. Yeah, it is like split testing. It's like uh, split testing and then, yeah, doubling down on the winners as you start to find them. Right. But similar to split testing where, you know, like Google or Facebook or whatever, they've got their they figured out a lot of winners at this point, but they aren't they have they've never quit split testing entirely. They still run some tests to maybe 10 percent of the audience and 90 percent of the time they do the thing that they know is best already. And Explore Exploit is asking you to do the same thing in your life. So you continue your career and you're focused most of the time, 80 to 90 percent on the thing that's the best solution you've found so far. But you still spend 10 to 20 percent of your time toying with side projects or reading about a different career or seeing if you can come across something else that lights you up even better. Um, and so uh, that's one strategy for trying to find that that niche, that area that is best for you. But the other thing that you can do, I, I don't think um, I don't think most people perhaps, you know, I, I kind of know it's true, but even I don't even know if I have capitalized on it enough. Um, the Internet has opened up way more things than you could ever imagine that could be a job. Now, you don't most things that people talk about being jobs like there are all kinds of stuff. That's a that's a job that doesn't seem like it could be like um there, you know, there's this very popular website called Pro Football Focus subscription product. It analyzes all the stats in the NFL and then ranks and grades players by position. Well, that to whoever the guys were that started that, that was just some like nerd side project that they loved because they were really into football and wanted to calculate stats and like rank the players and stuff. Right. Mm -hmm. um, and now that's their full time job It's the successful business. Yeah. Um, same thing with, you know, there are a bunch of things on uh, basketball and other sports. Ben Thompson's uh, subscription newsletter and blog Stratechery is a good uh, example of this. He just loved writing about technology and how it was changing businesses. And so he started blogging about it and then he started charging a newsletter that was like 10 bucks a month or 100 bucks a year. And now he's got tons of subscribers and a really successful website just blogging about how technology impacts Amazon or Google or Facebook or whatever. Um, and that's like kind of a new form of like tech journalism, but even like different in, in some way where he can do long form or he can just focus on the companies he cares about or write about whatever he wants. Um, and, uh, you know, those are some examples that are like more data driven and uh, and writing based. 
but it's true for all kinds of sucks, uh, all kinds of stuff. Um, I came across uh, a woman the other day who has a, a company that all she does is make yarn and sells <laughs> yarn. And uh, she just had, you know, she's got a bunch of employees. She just had her first $10,000 day. Like, I mean, there's is a huge business. Yeah. Um, and uh, my point is that there are like an infinite range of niches like that available on the Internet. And so digging around and looking for that and thinking like, what comes easily to me already? What is enjoyable to me already? And then trying to find a way that you can make money from that. If you're passionate enough about it, uh, now you can probably find enough people to make a job out of it. And the, um, the, the thing is as well, it, even if you can't make enough money out of it, it's going to feel so much fun. It's going to feel like so much fun that you don't even really care. So we did, and for the listeners at home, they may be able to do this little thought experiment for themselves, but we're going to run through it in an upcoming episode a little bit more thoroughly. But here's a brief overview. If you were to take the wage, your take-home wage from a typical job, which is something that you don't necessarily love, and I was to say to you, you can give back some of your wage in return for an allowance to do with your job. So let's say you are allowed to wear whatever you want. So you can come into work in wearing pajamas. And you're like, okay, mm-hmm. well, there you go. There's, I'll give you 1500, 1500 quid back. And you're like, right, okay, now you can work from home. You never need to go in the office. You're like, oh, fucking hell. Right, okay, well, you can have... You can have two thousand like pounds back for that, and you're like, right now you can choose your own working hours, and you're like, oh my god, like oh, uh, another two thousand pounds back. And we sat around a dinner table, and we managed to get it to the point where the guy that we were running this experiment on was paying us to come to work <laughs> <laughs> because we chopped away all of the. And we were like, look, man, like it's evident that you hate your job so much, you're so unfulfilled with this that you would literally pay to not have to go and do it. Um, and then uh, just to, to bookend this, this particular part, in terms of finding purpose and things that you really enjoy in life, uh, Gretchen Rubin used this really cool example about what did you do between the ages of 8 and 14? What was it that you spent your time doing around about then? And she uses this example of one of the best color pickers in the world. So this woman who matches up uh, very unique, different shades. It's for interior design and she does stuff for clothing companies and branding companies and marketing and all these sort of things. Someone once asked her, like, so what, what qualifications have you got? She says, well, I, I really, I don't have anything. I kind of learned on the job. But when I was nine years old, I had the biggest Crayola set that was available and I spent all of my time just playing around with colors. And mm. similar to myself, between the age of like six and 14, I loved listening to audiobooks. I just used to pound audiobooks, like 20 cassette audiobooks and listen to that. And what is the podcast platform if it's not the modern day version of an audiobook? Right. So, you know, as a, as a bit of a canary in the coal mine, that might be a, a good place for, for some people to start, I think, moving forward. Um, so yeah, we, 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 those are good examples. Thank you. Um, we've talked about the kind of big picture stuff. Now let's let's get into the nitty gritty, the the murky world of actually how habits are set and 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 how that comes. Could you take us through it? So I divide a habit into four different stages, um, and so just from a high level, those stages are cue, craving, response, and reward. So the cue is something that gets your attention, like you see a plate of cookies on the counter. That's a visual cue, or the ambulance comes behind you on the street and you hear it. And so you pull to the side of the road, like that's an auditory cue or your phone buzzes in your pocket. That's like a physical or a tactile cue. Um, and so it can be any of the, the senses, but, uh, usually it tends to be visual. Humans are very visual creatures. So that, uh, that tends to be the most predominant sense, but the cue gets your attention. 
The second step is the craving, which is dependent on how you interpret the cue. So it, uh, you, whether you get a craving or the motivation to act, uh, whether you predict that it would be useful to take a response depends on the meaning that you assign to the cue. So if you have two people who walk into a living room and they see a pack of cigarettes sitting on the table, the first person might, uh, they've been a smoker for 10 years and they see it and they get this craving of, oh, I want to pick a cigarette up and smoke. So they interpret that visual cue as favorable. The second person has never smoked a day in their life. And so they see the cigarettes and they just think, oh, it's just a pack of cigarettes and they move on. Um, and so it's really about the meaning that you assign to that visual cue that determines whether you act on it or not. Then there's the response. And finally, there the response is the actual habit or action itself. And then finally, there's the reward or the outcome. So visual cue, you see a plate of cookies on the counter. Craving, you interpret them as favorable. You predict, oh, that'll be sweet, sugary, tasty. So you response, grab one, take a bite. And then finally, the reward. And the reward serves two purposes. The first is it satisfies the craving that came before the action. So you predicted that the, ta- the cookie would be tasty and sweet. And once you take a bite, it is, in fact, sugary, tasty, sweet. So that re- resolves that craving. And then the second thing that it does is it teaches your brain what to repeat for next time. Because when actions are followed by a feeling of pleasure, when it's enjoyable or you got uh, you solved the problem you were facing or you had some kind of successful feeling at the end of the habit, it feels good. And your brain's like, hey, that was enjoyable. I should do this again next time when I'm in a similar circumstance. And so it's actually uh, closing the feedback loop and training your brain what to do again and again. And once you've done something enough times and gotten the outcome that you hoped uh, from it uh, again and again and again, the feedback loop gets really tight and you can do it pretty much on autopilot. You don't even really think about it. You're just sort of automatically whenever you put a shoe on and see a shoe untied on your foot, that's the cue. And you know, oh, I just go ahead and tie the shoe. And that's how I get this um, uh, reward that I'm looking for of having a shoe securely on my foot and so on. Um, the, uh, The example that I give to kind of wrap all this together and show you how common it is for your brain to do this and how quickly we proceed through all those stages without thinking is the process of flipping on a light switch. So when you first move into a new home or an apartment, um, you don't even think, you don't know where all the the switches are or what switch turns on which light, right? Like you're, you're kind of, oh, no, I need to figure out, okay, it's not exactly that one, whatever. Yeah. And then over time, after a few days, you start to learn, oh, okay, this is the light that's in the kitchen. You know, I flipped this switch. And pretty soon you walk into a room, it's dark. So cue, the room is dark. Craving, I want to be able to see. Response, I reach exactly for the right switch and flip it on. Reward, I'm now able to see. And of course, you never think about those four stages when you're doing it. It happens in a fraction of a second, but all four are being completed right away. And uh, so that's an example of what it looks like once the habit's formed and you're doing it pretty much on autopilot. Yeah, I totally get that. I, I think you could probably place me anywhere in my bedroom in p- total blackness and I'd be able to find the light switch. It's one of those very bizarre, like homing homing signal things that goes Mm. on. Um, So I wanted to talk about making good habits and breaking bad habits because the process is similar but also completely opposite for both of them, right? Could you take us through making good habits? So someone may want to begin the process for writing a book or they may want to spend more time um, outside or they might want to do get into an exercise routine or whatever it might be. How do you make a good habit? 
So once you understand those four stages, you kind of have four different points of intervention for building a habit or breaking a bad one. And so I call these the four laws of behavior change. But the, the basic way to think about it is for the cue, the first law of behavior change is to make it obvious. You want the cues of your good habits to be obvious, available, visible, easy to see. The easier they are to spot and get your attention, the more likely you are to act on them. The second law of behavior change is related to the craving. So you want to make your habits attractive. The more attractive or appealing a habit is, the more likely you are to feel motivated to do it. For the third law of behavior change, the response, make it easy. And the easier, more convenient, frictionless habits are, the more likely they are to occur and easier they're going to be to perform. And then finally, the fourth law of behavior change is to make it satisfying. And that's related to the reward or the ending of the habit. You want the ending to be satisfying, enjoyable, pleasurable, because it will give you a reason to repeat it again in the future. So those four laws make it obvious, make it attractive, make it easy, make it satisfying. They give you kind of like a simple, to easy to understand framework for how to adjust a habit to make a good habit stick. And, you know, of course, I go over all kinds of methods in the book for doing each one of those. Um, and we can talk about some of them here if you'd like. And then for breaking a bad habit, you just invert those four laws. So rather than making the cues obvious, you want to make the cues of your bad habits invisible. Rather than making it attractive, make it unattractive, make it difficult, make it unsatisfying. And so by having those four kind of uh, guiding principles, now you can start to look around your habits, investigate them and try to figure out how can I do that? How can I make the cues invisible or how can I make it um, uh, more difficult to perform or how can I add a consequence so it's unsatisfying to do this habit and so on? And uh, basically, I like those four laws because they kind of give you a simple line of questioning that you can use for inspecting your own habits and trying to figure out where exactly should I uh, try to apply the pressure or make a change. I think certainly when, before reading Atomic Habits, and again, like I say, individually, a lot of this stuff had already appeared in my consciousness through one form or another. But until there is that framework, it's so nebulous and kind of just cloudy and, and difficult to grasp that without the step-by-step -step process that you're going through, it's a habit for building habits. In a, mm. in a way or a framework that you can wrap building habits around, I suppose. Um, well, I think a lot of people have had this experience where you make a change or two, but it kind of it almost feels like you're just making random changes and they never amount to anything. Um, and so my and this comes back to what we talked about earlier about systems. You know, I chose the phrase atomic habits for three reasons. So the first meaning of the word atomic is tiny or small. And that is like a, a you know, like an atom. That's a key part of my philosophy. Habits should be small and easy to do. The second meaning of the word atomic is the one that's often overlooked, which is the fundamental unit of a larger system. So like atoms build into molecules, molecules build into compounds and so on. And then the uh, the third and final meaning is the source of immense energy and power. And I think that if you understand all three of those, then you kind of get the narrative arc of the book, which is you make changes that are small and easy to do. And then you layer them on top of each other like units in a larger system. And if you do that, then you can end up with some really powerful and remarkable results in the long run. And uh, it's really the layering that on top of them, the the as you just mentioned, seeing the whole framework and trying to make a variety of these little changes rather than just doing them haphazardly and kind of one off that leads to changes that actually stick in the long run. And so um, having those four laws of behavior change and those different questions so you can ask yourself, how can I make it obvious? How can I make it attractive? How can I make it easy? How can I make it satisfying? They all kind of work together 
to form a more robust framework and increase the odds that you're actually going to be able to stick to the habit in the long run. I get that. So can we run through some examples for um, sure. making and breaking? So, um, well, let's start with, uh, with the first law. So making it obvious. So, you know, one of the things you can do here is what I call environment design. And, uh, I'll give you some examples for both building good habits and breaking bad ones. So for good habits, you want to make the cues obvious. You want to re, re, um, re either remove the distractions or, uh, add different elements to the environment that are more likely to catch your attention. So, for example, uh, for a long time, I would buy apples and put them in the crisper in the bottom of the fridge, and then I would forget they were there uh, because I wouldn't see them. And then two weeks would pass, and they'd go bad, and then I'd throw them out, and I'd be annoyed because I'm wasting food and wasting money. And so eventually, I bought this large display bowl, and I put it right in the middle of the counter and put the apples in the bowl. And now they're gone in like three days just because I walk by them all the time, and they're just they're obvious. They're easy to see. Um so you can imagine a lot of changes you can make to your kitchen like that, right? Like put the healthy snacks, like the nuts and the fruit and stuff out on the counter or in uh, easy to see locations and then hide the unhealthy stuff in the bottom of the pantry or the back of the freezer or the top shelf or things like that. Um, similarly, when I wanted to build a flossing habit. So for many years, I would brush my teeth consistently, but I would only floss every now and then. And I realized one of the issues was that the floss was tucked away in a drawer in the bathroom. And so I just wouldn't see it and I wouldn't think about it. So I bought a little bowl and I put it right next to my toothbrush on the sink and put the floss in there. And now I brush my teeth, I put the toothbrush down and I pick the floss up because it's right next to it. And that one little change of making it obvious was basically all I had to do to stick to that habit. You know, now I've been doing it for years and it's just interesting to me how little it takes sometimes for a habit to stick. So that's, that, that's an intervention only at the first, the first stage, which is actually right. so had you the don't downstream effect. Need all four, right? Like sometimes just depends on how much friction you're facing and how difficult it's been for you to stick with it. And also, you know, how complicated the habit is like flossing actually isn't really that complicated of a habit. <laughs> so it only needed a little bit of a nudge to yeah. stick with that. Yeah. So, um, so anyway, so those are some examples of good habits. You can also think about on the other side for breaking a bad one. So let's take, for example, a lot of feel, people feel like they watch too much Netflix or spend too much time watching television. Well, if you walk into pretty much any living room, where do all the couches and chairs face? Right? Like they all face the TV. So what is that room designed to get you to do? Um, and, you know, I'm not saying you have to redesign your entire home, but there there's like a spectrum of choices that you have here. You know, you could take a chair and turn it away from the TV and have it face uh, a coffee table with a book on it. Or you could put the remote control inside a drawer and put a book in its place. Um, you could also put the TV inside a wall unit or a cabinet so that it's kind of like behind doors and you're less likely to see it. I had one reader who uh, she and her husband watched a ton of sporting events and they realized they were spending so much time on that that they decided they just were going to get rid of their TV. And their new metric would be if we don't care enough about a game to drive 15 minutes down the street and watch it at the sports bar, then we don't actually want to watch it. Um, and so varying levels of you know of difficulty there. But so that's those are examples of making it invisible rather than making it obvious. Um, but you could also employ the, so this is where I think this is where things start to get a little more powerful. You can start to layer things on top of each other. So that's making it invisible, but you could also make it difficult. So this is the inversion of the third law. So you're, you're trying to increase the friction associated with the bad habit. So you could say, unplug your TV after each use 
and then only plug it back in if you can say the name of the show that you want to watch. So you're just you're not allowed to like turn it on and find something mindlessly. Yeah. Or you could take the batteries out of the remote control so that it takes an extra 10 seconds to turn the TV on. And maybe that's enough time for you to be like, do I really want to watch something or am I just kind of like mindlessly browsing here? To interject there as a, a one for social media that again, another pearl of wisdom from George, who's part of the Modern Wisdom Project. He deletes uh, Instagram from his phone, um, but also turns off the notifications when it's on his phone. So when it's on, it's invisible. And when it isn't, it's really difficult. Like if anyone's navigated to the app store, I got to download it. Then I got to re-log back in. You know, that, that's, that's costly. For a while, I, uh, I did something similar where I started at each time I would finish using the app, I would log out. So yep. then I'd have to at least type my, you know, password and whatever to get back in. Yep. But then I started just deleting the app after each use. And so, yeah, you can use Instagram, but you do, do you want to wait 60 seconds to download it? And it's funny how many times you don't actually care enough. You're like, I don't actually want to wait for this. Like, I just wanted to browse it mindlessly, yep. you know? So just a little bit of friction there can, can really help. Um, now, if you, you know, sometimes you can find ways around that, right? You're like, oh, well, I just didn't delete at that time or something like that. So you can also be more strict about it and use what uh, scientists call a commitment device. So commitment device is a way to kind of lock in your future behavior. So um, it's a choice that you make now that makes it easier to stick with a habit in the long time, in the long run. So for the social media one, uh, I realized when I was about a year into writing Atomic Habits that like, okay, this is going too slow. I'm spending too much time on social. I need to make sure that I like stay more focused here to get this book done. So uh, I had my assistant every Monday. She would log me out of Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter reset all the passwords. <laughs> I would work all week on Friday. She would give me the passwords and then I'd log in over the weekend and use social media. And then on Monday we'd do it all over again. <laughs> and, um, so that system, right. It like forced my hand. It took willpower out of the equation. I couldn't log in. Yep. Um, I, I mean, I guess I could have gone and reset the password or something, but then she would know. And so there was like this, you know, accountability aspect there too and yep. stuff. So, um, so anyway, element, uh, commitment devices can be a useful way to adjust that too. They also can be an example of the second law of behavior change. So the second law is to make it attractive, right? The more attractive or appealing a habit is, the more likely you are to stick with it. So let's take like a common example, like uh, going for a run uh, in the morning. Well, you might go to bed tonight and think, all right, tomorrow's the day. Uh, I'm going to wake up early. I'm going to go for a run at 6 a.m. So you set your alarm and then 6 a.m. comes around and your bed is warm and it's cold outside. And you're like, well, maybe I'll just press news. But if you rewind the clock and go back to the previous day and you send your friend a text and you say, hey, let's meet at the park at 630. Well, now 6 a.m. comes around and your bed is still warm and still cold outside. But if you don't get up and go to the park, you're a jerk because you leave your friend there all alone. And so it was actually that text that became the commitment device for your future action. It what it did was it changed the equation in your mind. So now it's actually more appealing, more attractive to get up out of bed than it was before because there's an immediate cost associated with it. So you've increased the attractiveness of the behavior. So that's sometimes people ask that, like, how do you do that? How do you how do you make a habit more attractive? That's one way to do it. I certainly think um, that the the attractiveness for me, making a habit more attractive, especially one that's potentially difficult. Um, having followed the protocol that you lay out in Atomic Habits, that does seem sometimes to be a, a, one of the more difficult points to go through. Like making it obvious is, uh, because I'm going to forget to say it, 
How many uh, visual uh, visual cells have we got in the body? The visual sensory cells. Is it like fourteen million cells that sense, and ten million of them are for the visual field? Yeah, it's actually even a higher percentage than that. It, d- it depends on how it's analyzed, and there are some questions about uh, the layout of it. But basically, uh, there are eleven million or so sensory receptors in the body, and ten million of them are dedicated to vision. So, That's... like, we're incredibly visually biased. We're yeah. very visual creatures. It's, only, um, it's definitely it's the strongest sense. Yeah. 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 completely blew my mind when I did that. So yeah, I mean, you know, making it obvious is is one, but the, the making it attractive one, that's a great example about texting a friend, that external accountability is a big trigger. Yeah, so I think you're right. Um, the uh, making it obvious, adding more cues, it tends to be a more external thing. And so I think it's easier to understand, it's easier to see. Whereas the craving, it's uh, like I said, it's all about the meaning that you assign to the cue, which means it's a very internal thing which makes it a little bit maybe harder to pin down or figure out like how would I actually do something to, to make that happen. So um, the commitment device, that's one option. Uh, the other thing that you could do though, is that essentially a craving is a story that you're telling yourself about what something means. And so if you can change that story, then you can change the craving that is associated with that cue, or you can change the, the response that you want to take. So, for example, let's say that you wake up every morning and you make a piece of toast. And so when you walk into the the kitchen, you see a loaf of bread and you interpret that cue as favorable. I'll make some toast. It'll be enjoyable. But then you read a book that convinces, you know, some diet or nutrition book that convinces you that grain is the devil. And so now you walk into the kitchen and you see the same loaf of bread but suddenly it means something different. You have a different story in your mind about what that is. Now you don't want to make a a piece of toast. Now you think, oh, this is unhealthy. I should stay away from this. And so, um, you know, I'm not advocating for a particular diet or anything here, but my point is that education, reading, uh, exploring and hearing about new worldviews is a way to change the story that you tell yourself about the same cues of the same experiences in your life. And if you change the story, then you've effectively changed the craving and what is attractive and what isn't attractive. So reading widely can actually be a way to change the cravings that you have associated with uh, particular habits. It can be tough because just readings about something once might not change like a lifetime of evidence and experience for that. And this is also, it comes back a little bit to something I talk about early in the book, which I call identity-based habits. Um, And it's this idea that every action is like a vote for the kind of person that you want to become. And so if you, if you want to change the story that you're telling yourself about a particular cue, if you want to change the craving that you have, then what you need to do is you need to provide evidence of that new story, evidence of that new identity. And so you can do it in a small way and start casting votes for that identity, start building up evidence and proof of this new story And then eventually, if you get enough proof, you'll start to believe it. So, for example, if your current story is, um, oh, I always give up whenever I start a workout routine or I never stick with anything or whatever. Well, 
now you can focus on like just doing one push up a day. Uh, so it doesn't, it's not enough to transform your body. It's not going to get you the results that you want of, you know, losing a bunch of weight on the scale or something, but it does cast a vote for being the type of person who doesn't miss workouts. It does reinforce this new story of I am a healthy person. I'm the type of person who's consistent or I'm the type of person who works out every day. And in the beginning, I think that counts for a lot because you're just trying to build up evidence of this new story that you're telling yourself, this new identity that you're trying to build. And so I think in the long run, that's another way to change your craving and change whether a habit is attractive to you or not. Um, and then the final thing I'll say on that is that your social environment uh, can be a big influence on what habits are attractive or what are unattractive. You know, like you have eaten pork all your life and then you join a new religion where pork isn't allowed. And so now pork's very unattractive uh, in comparison to what it was in the past because eating it would get you ostracized from the group and you would lose your friends and so on. And so the social reinforcement there is like a very strong driver of whether that habit sticks or not. And the same thing is true on, you know, a much, um, more everyday scale. Uh, so like, let's say you move into a new neighborhood and you walk outside on Tuesday night and you see that all your neighbors have their recycling bins out and you think, Oh, we need to sign up for recycling. That's what people like us do in this neighborhood. And you stick with that habit of recycling every week for 20 years, um, largely because it's socially reinforced, because the expectation to act that way from your neighbors and so on. And um, so that suddenly makes ha uh, the habit of recycling much more attractive to stick with because it means it's a signal that you belong to the group or that you get it, that you uh, that you're part of the community. So. Um, I guess just combining all that commitment devices can be a short term way to change uh, the attractiveness of a habit and identity and social reinforcement are more long term ways to kind of shift which habits are attractive in the long run. I understand. So we're moving on to response now. We've got Q, we've got the craving and now we're on to the response. So, you know, this is mostly about making your habits easy, convenient, simple to do, making them the path of least resistance. And um you know, there are a variety of things you do here, but the one that I usually start with recommending is what I call the two minute rule. So you basically take whatever habit you're trying to build and you scale it down to something that takes two minutes or less to do. So you're just making it very simple. So read 40 books a year becomes read one page or do yoga four days a week becomes take out my yoga mat. And sometimes people like resist that, you know, they're like, well, I know the real thing I want to do is actually do the workout. Like I'm not just looking to take my yoga mat out every day. Um, and so they kind of feel like it's this mental trick, but if you feel that way, then I would encourage you just to limit yourself to like the first two minutes or three minutes. Um, I had a, a reader actually who he ended up losing over a hundred pounds. And one of the first things that he did was he went to the gym, but he wasn't allowed to stay for longer than five minutes. So he would get in his car, drive to the gym, get out, do half an exercise, get back in the car, drive home. Mm -hmm. And it sounds silly to people at first, right? It sounds ridiculous. It's like, this is not going to be the thing that gets this guy in shape. But what you realize is that he was mastering the art of showing up. He was becoming the type of person that went to the gym four days a week, even if it was only for five minutes. And I think that that's like a deeper truth about how habits work, which is that a habit must be established before it can be improved. You know, like you need to make it the standard in your life before you worry about optimizing and expanding and upgrading from there. And so often we're focused on finding like the perfect diet plan or the ideal workout program or the best business idea. We get so caught up in like doing it perfectly from the start 
that we don't give ourselves permission to show up in a small way. And I think it, it mostly starts with that, like allow yourself to show up and be there, um, make it your new normal, even if it's only for two minutes and then you can upgrade and expand afterward. It's a common citation from trainers that say the best workout program is one that you stick to. And mm-hmm. the same thing for meditation. And I- I'm struggling day by day to develop a more sophisticated reading habit. So for me, I did exactly that. Although this was before I read Atomic Habits at the start of last year, I was like, look, just five minutes after my morning routine, which is quite kind of hermetic as it is. So it was good. I was like, look, I'm struggling to concentrate. I'm used to a high degree of stimulus from electronic devices. Looking at a piece of paper makes me feel agitated physically because there's not enough, (laughs) there's not enough stimulus going on. Just, just read like five minutes after you finish your meditation. Like the book's there. It's next to you. It's obvious. It's easy because it, I can reach for it, et cetera, et cetera. And that's now built up to the point where the flight over, I'm currently in uh, San Bernardino in California, and the flight over from um, London to LA, which is 10 and a half hours, and I just read the whole time. And that's one year on. So, yep. you know, I mean, it, the plane is a very specific example in that there is like fuck all else that you can do on a plane, really, unless you want to watch like Mission Impossible 4 over and over again. But sure. <laughs> um, so, yes, we've got the cue craving response. We've got the response for good habits. How about for bad? Well, so this is mostly about increasing friction. So the harder it is to do the action, the less likely you are to do it. So um, if you find yourself biting your nails, then you could like wrap bandages around your uh, fingertips or um, you could wear oven mitts, which I've heard about people doing things like that. Right. It's, it's <laughs> now so hard to do it. Solution. Right. Yeah. Such it's now so hard solution. to do it that you can't. Um, now. I bring that example up because I think it illustrates the fact that like, well, that would be ridiculous, right? To wear oven mitts all day long. Mm-hmm. So sometimes it's more effective to focus on other areas, like other, the three other steps rather than right. You, and you'll see this for most habits that there are probably one or two, uh, areas of intervention that are like the low hanging fruit and you should probably start there. But anyway, so you could increase friction that way. You could also imagine like, say you're trying to quit smoking. Well, if there's a pack of cigarettes on the table, 10 feet from you, that's much harder to resist than if the closest pack of cigarettes is like 15 miles away down the road at like the gas station. Right. So, uh, you want some friction there. You can also do, uh, you know, I mentioned some of the eating examples earlier about like putting fruit on the counter, you know, nuts in an obvious place, things like that. There's a a story from uh, BJ Fogg, who's a professor at Stanford. He also writes about habits and, uh, he said, um, he enjoyed eating popcorn. He liked eating it. He just didn't want to eat as much of it. And so he took it out of his pantry, walked down the hallway, went to the garage and put it on the highest shelf in the garage. Um, Now, if he really wants it, he can just go out and get it. It's only going to take 60 seconds. But if he's designing for his lazy decision, for his default action, like what is he going to do when he's exhausted and tired after a long day of work? He's not going to go out and get it. And that really kind of captures the essence of this idea of like making it difficult. You want to put more steps between you and the bad behaviors and fewer steps between you and the good ones. And if you're operating and working in an environment that's like that, no single choice is going to transform your habits. But when you put them all together, imagine how much easier it would be to make the right choice. If you have like 30 of those little decisions that are all kind of nudging you in the right direction. Um, so it's mostly about increasing the number of steps or increasing the friction of the action. Got you. And finally the reward, 
How are we working on that? Well, so the basic idea here is that the reason habits stick is because the ending of the habit is satisfying. And you can sort of divide this on a timeline. So there's sort of an immediate outcome and an ultimate outcome, an instant gratification and a delayed gratification associated with habits. Now, with bad habits, the immediate outcome is often favorable. And this is one of the key reasons why we stick with them. You know, so like, what is the immediate outcome of eating a donut? Well, it's great. It's sweet. It's sugary. It tastes good. Um, It's only the ultimate outcome. If you keep eating donuts for six months or a year or two years, that's unfavorable. And with good habits, it's often the reverse, right? Like, what's the immediate outcome of going to the gym for a week? It's kind of unfavorable. Your body's probably sore. You're, you haven't really changed at all. You look the same in the mirror. The scale is basically the same. So you don't have a whole lot to show for it. It's only once you've stuck with that habit for six months or a year or two years that you start to get the changes in your body that you were hoping for. So with good habits, the immediate outcome is often unfavorable or has some kind of cost. And the ultimate outcome is where the rewards actually lie. And I think you can just summarize this by saying the cost of your good habits is in the present. The cost of your bad habits is in the future. And so much of the battle of building good habits and breaking bad ones is figuring out ways to pull a little bit of that reward into the present moment for good habits so that you have a reason to stick with it while you're kind of working through this like valley of death where you're waiting <laughs> for to, to accumulate and for bad habits, pulling some of the consequences from the future into the present moment. So you feel a little bit of that pain right now. So you have a reason to avoid it. So in the case of like one example for a good habit, let's say, um, Let's say that you're trying to send sales uh, emails for, you know, prospecting emails for your business, or you are meditating for 10 minutes a day, or you're going to write one page a day or a thousand words a day. Um, And whenever you do that habit, you have a jar of marbles in front of you. And that jar of marbles has like 90 blue marbles and 10 red ones, for example. And each time that you do the habit, you pull a marble out of the jar. And if you pull out one of the 90, then nothing happens. Just like pat on the back. Good job. You do what you're supposed to. But if you pull out one of the 10, then you get some kind of reward that's exciting to you. Maybe it's a piece of chocolate. Maybe you get to take a bubble bath. Maybe you get to go for a walk outside. Maybe you get to watch an hour of Netflix for whatever you want. Um, whatever it is that's interesting to you. But what you've done is you've introduced some element of surprise and like instant reward into that habit. So now, now you have a reason to feel good about it in the moment. You you wrote for you wrote your thousand words and your book still isn't finished, but you got to pull out one of the fun marbles and so you get to watch Netflix for an hour. Um, so there's a little bit of an immediate reward there that's aligned with uh, the ultimate thing that you're working toward. Um, and then uh, the key, the caveat that I want to add to this is that you want to choose a form of reinforcement, a form of reward that aligns with your desired identity. Right. So like some people will go to the gym and then reward themselves with like a cup of ice cream. And it's like, well, <laughs> you're casting one vote for a healthy person and one vote for an unhealthy one. So it's sort of like a wash, you know, so you want uh, instead, maybe you could say uh, you get to have a bubble bath, which both going to the gym and taking a bubble bath are a vote for taking care of your body. And so it's kind of like reinforcing the same identity. But even at a minimum, I think, you know, it doesn't they don't always have to align perfectly, mm-hmm. but uh, at a minimum, it shouldn't conflict uh, with your desired identity. So anyway, that's a, that's an example of how to like make it satisfying in the moment and try to overcome that misalignment of the immediate and ultimate outcome of your habits. And how about for bad? 
So this is mostly about adding some kind of consequence to the behavior. Um, one good example is what we talked about uh, earlier about the idea of texting your friend to go meet uh, to run at the park. So previously, sleeping in didn't have any kind of consequence. You could press snooze and it wasn't a big deal. But now suddenly you press snooze and you're a bad friend. And so there's some immediate outcome that's changed the equation a little bit. So this uh, this also shows you, I mentioned very early on when we talked about the four stages, about the, the reward satisfies the craving that came before the action. So the second stage and the fourth stage are kind of tied to each other. The second stage is your anticipation of the outcome, and the fourth stage is the realization of that outcome. And so for that reason, the strategies that, in, that make habits more attractive also simultaneously uh, make it more satisfying or make the – if you skip the habit, they make it unsatisfying. So they're, they kind of like uh, – they work with each other. So um, texting your friend not only makes it more attractive to get up, it makes it unsatisfying or adds a consequence to sleeping in. So it, it, uh, they kind of like work with each other there. I totally get it. James, I, I can't sing enough praises about, about Atomic Habits. I genuinely can't. We have created the motherfucker duo, which is Deep Work by Cal Newport and Atomic Habits by <laughs> yourself. <laughs> that's we, great. We, well, uh, Cal, is, uh, Cal does great work, so I'm happy to be in company with him. That's, yeah, uh, that's really good. I challenge anyone to read those two books and not come out of it as a complete motherfucker. But um, uh, today's been fantastic. Um, anyone who is interested, I will link your website in the show notes below. Am I right in thinking you've nearly got half a million uh, newsletter subscribers now? Yeah, it's been crazy, but uh, but it's great, and I'm um, really happy and grateful to have that many readers. And uh, I'll just do my best to keep sharing useful ideas there. How does it How does it feel to have half a million people like you? You press a button, and when that button gets pressed, that half a million people see something. Yeah, I try not to think about it because then I just get in my head too much and start spiraling into perfectionism and worrying about it not being good enough. But uh, but on my good days, uh, I feel really grateful for it, and it's just um, it's cool, you know. Like I. I write ideas because I hope that they make the world a little bit of a better place or make some small impact in my little corner of the universe. And so um, to have people reading and enjoying and finding it useful and using them in their daily lives, like that's what it's all about. So, uh, so yeah, I'm, I'm really happy and grateful for it. Fantastic. I, I genuinely do think that you are making, making a really big impact. Um, so thank you so much for your time. I, I really appreciate it. Yeah, you bet. Thanks for having me on. Good to talk. <laughs>